You are listening to Collector's Edition on the Bright Archives podcast. I'm Catherine Barbera. And I'm David Bernabo. Today we are interviewing Fred Lomberg-Holm. Uh, so my name is Fred Lomberg-Holm. You may know Fred from his work as a musician, predominantly a cellist, often integrating electronics. Mostly I, I play the cello. And I got into the cello because somebody abandoned a cello at our house on their way off to India or something. And and that just became like the coolest noise-making thing in the house, so. He is a composer and improviser and has well over 500 album credits on Discogs.com. Fred has led his own bands like the Valentine Trio, Terminal 4, and Lightbox Orchestra. And he's logged many hours in studios and on the road with Vandermark Five, Ballister, and various bands with sax legend Peter Brotzman. I'd say the highest selling record that Fred plays on is Wilco's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. And I think my personal favorite might be a record called Bow Hard at the Frog, where Fred's cello is accompanied by the amphibians of the Everglades. Generally, I've spent most of my life uh, working with sound uh, and sound making things and sometimes uh, things that are uh, called music and sometimes things that are just called noise. But that goes way back from before I can remember of kind of an obsession with uh, noise making toys. And uh, if it didn't make a noise, I had no use for it, according to my parents from, from infancy. But we aren't going to talk about music. Here on the Bright Archives podcast, we explore what it means to build meaningful archives. And on the Collector's Edition series, we talk with collectors to learn what motivates all of us to bring objects into our lives and how possessions shape our lived experiences. Yeah, we talked with Fred over Zoom about his love of collecting small objects. Among other things, I collect small enamel pins, lapel pin type things generally from just about anywhere where they make pins. We also touch on a few deeper topics, like the difference between collecting for an institutional archive, like the type I used to do as an archivist, and more personal collecting. Fred gets into the joy that collecting can bring, but also how sometimes an administrative task, like creating a catalog of your collection, can remove that joy and make it feel more like a job. With Collector's Edition, I think we're testing a theory. The theory that learning more about the objects people keep can help us understand more about the world around us and our places in it. Like how we tend to associate objects with certain memories or histories. In 67, 68, into 69, my uh, father had a, a job in Sweden and they decided during the summer that they wanted to go on a big adventure into Eastern Europe. And so we did. And I actually was in Prague the summer of 1968 during the quote-unquote Prague Spring as a six-year-old. During this time, already in Eastern Europe, uh, the, and I mean, there's a long tradition in the U.S., but 
Eastern Europe got, was really into these kind of pins. In Russian, they call them znatsky or something. I'm not saying it just right, but I was the Super Bowl ambassador. You know, I had a bag of Super Bowls and I'd give kids Super Bowls and people would give me znatsky or whatever it was called in Czech or Polish or Romanian. Or... Hey, what's a, what's a Super Bowl? Well, I had to look this up. So according to Wikipedia, it's like a really big bouncy ball that if you throw it down onto a hard surface, it can actually bounce over a three-story building. <laughs> <laughs> and then I met this one guy who was in a kind of a pop band that did Western songs in the hotel entertainment area. And, uh, and it was funny because they did like Beatles songs and things like this, but they didn't actually speak English. But I didn't understand that, so I talking away at them in English and uh, anyway and they gave me some a bunch of pins anyway and I just kind of continued after that just always being interested in them whenever I had opportunity I had some pins that go back you know to that period and during my elementary school and high school years and then I moved to New York City in 1980 and around that time a lot of the Russian uh, Soviet Jewish emigres had uh, come with bags of uh, znachki under the mistaken impression they'd be very valuable here or something. But so I could buy them very, very inexpensively. And, uh, you know, in the 80s, most of my collection was just East European and Russian. It sounds like the pins have a connection to both your childhood, but also travel. So are there specific... Like, how do you choose a moment that you're going to collect a pin? Is it associated with going to a specific place or a topic you're interested in? Yeah, how do you decide that? Or is it random? That's okay, too. <laughs> I, I reject pins. So it's not totally just like anything that I come across. And it is somewhat travel-related. Like, I've been spending uh, a lot of time in Portugal over the last decade, and so I have a lot more Portuguese pins than I do uh, other countries right now, except for, you know, former Soviet bloc. You know, what catches my eye usually is the design more than anything else. It's like I, I kind of, it's an aesthetic choice usually that I like the way that pin looks. There's a lot of ugly pins out there. I have a box of just American flag pins and partly I have that because it's amazing how shoddily made and how poorly designed they generally are but I guess they're for you know the a, a clientele that you know I don't really share a lot of aesthetic uh, sensibilities with I guess the content and the uh, sort of historical aspects are not second are secondary to be honest I mean it's an enjoyable part learning about them and, and finding out about things that have happened but in the first place if I didn't really like the the, the design I probably wouldn't have picked it up and therefore I wouldn't have done any research. Interesting. So I spent years working as an archivist, so I'm, I'm fascinated why people collect things, right? As an archivist, I collected things for a purpose, usually historical, to document an organization or a place. So I'm, I'm curious, why do you collect pins? Maybe we talked about, you know, you do reject some and you tend to, to collect things because of the design. What keeps you going to keep building the collection? I mean, it's partly probably momentum. <laughs> I have a collection and I add to the collection. 
like industrial design is a real thing, and I think a lot of people kind of don't really think about that, but each one had to be designed by a human being, not only using what pre-existing material from whatever organization it is, but making, you know, the decisions about exactly what it is, how big it is, what color lacquers they're going to use to, to represent the thing, and and uh, all the other issues about what level of detail they can go to and want to go to and or is important to go to. You know, it's funny because I have one other really large collection, and that's of tiny books. Mm, very cool. Not not just books. Some of them really are books, but a lot of them are more like little tiny artist-made things that, you know, the artist might even be sometimes a kind of a grander term than human people making small comic books or little art moments or poems and things like this. And I started collecting those also when I was in high school. To be honest, part of the reason that the tiny pins and the tiny book collection exists and continues to be a thing in my life is because they're very small and compact, you know, that, mm. and I, I've moved a lot. I mean, I, I really, I counted through it, it not that long ago. I met a woman who had lived in the same house since like 1953. And, and I was like, wow, you know, I mean, since I've been born and I was born in 62, and I, I've lived in like 30 different addresses, you know. Anyway, and so the nomadic part of my life, you know, accommodates if I'm going to have a collection. Like in my house right now, there's maybe at most 500 records, which for a musician is not necessarily particularly uh, impressive. But it's hard to move records, you know. Same with books. You know, I, I had thousands and thousands of books, but right now in the house, maybe there's a thousand, maybe Maybe, and I would say probably more of them belong to my wife than me, but. I, I know uh, the audience at home can't quite see what we're seeing, but can you show us some of the things you have? I'm, I'm, a, I'm not an archivist and I'm not a very disciplined collector. Hmm. You know, I'll say that. So uh, I don't have a, I don't have an index that I've made, you know, a printed kind of thing. Oh, there's a Mazen Kerbage comic book. Oh, this is a Brotzmann score, but I treat it as a kind of a book. Let me see what else. This is a kind of fun, weird accordion fold. Oh, look at that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the pages were tumbling out of the book as yeah. you opened it. <laughs> it's fun that way, huh? So, accordion uh, style is fun. You know. Oh, Angry Violist. This is Angry Violist number four. <laughs> I think I have an article in this issue, actually. Oh, Jesus had short hair. Oh my gosh, look at that. <laughs> it sounds like these these items bring you a lot of joy. Oh yeah. I will say that the only reason that I do this kind of collecting is because I because it's fun and and that's probably why I'm not really a very good archivist because I don't like the drudge I don't have a collection to to make a more administrative hat. If I wanna you know, if I wanna do office work there's so much office work that I neglect with for my own career and my real, you know, my real job, so to speak, that like, why would I then sit around and do administrative work? Oh, this is good. Our flag means death. <laughs> oh, this was a book about mice called the skillet shitters. <laughs> What it is about the archival process or those administrative tasks that suck the joy out of collecting? 
You can expand on that a little bit. All right. I, 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 I don't mean to say that it would suck the joy out of it, but it, honestly. <laughs> and I'm not offended. <clears throat> okay. Don't worry. It's just I'm, I'm like behind. I'm behind by several years in registering uh, compositions and recordings with BMI. You know what I'm saying? I'd rather make new records than deal with the old ones and uh, rather play music than anyway. So I wouldn't say it sucks the joy out, but it's just not my temperament, my personality. I have friends that have collections and then they have like this really great database. I don't even know how to do a spreadsheet. So anyway, so I can't make a spreadsheet where I have all the different things in index and I can cross-reference and I can, you know, search by author or publisher or year or whatever. It's just not me. I mean, I, I don't mean to put anybody down. The book collection, there's a, a woman I've known for a long time. She's a archivist, and she keeps hoping that I will somehow give her my tiny book collection at some point. Anyway, but archives also, I mean, for example, I, I have a, officially, I have an archive of my own work at the University of Chicago. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, well, I, I don't know what they really do, because that's the thing, is that they just say, give us stuff, and we'll organize it. But they don't say when they're going to organize it. And then I just gave them, over the years, just boxes of stuff, which I was happy to not have to move from place to place, or, or throw away, or burn, or whatever. But they must have eight or ten boxes of stuff. But I, I have a feeling that right now it's pretty much just sitting in, you know, in their warehouse somewhere with just like a big tag that says stuff from Fred Lombard home. But <laughs> and maybe and I don't envy whoever it is who has to go through those boxes and try to put things together. They weren't as interested in me, I think, uh, as they were interested in all the people that I've worked with. And I've learned this through knowing I have a good friend who is a researcher, historical researcher, and it's really interesting because he travels around the world going to specific people's archives, you know, in museums or collections or universities. And uh, so he goes to these kind of places looking for correspondences between a subject that he's studying and people that he knew that person had a friendship with, that kind of thing. And so so I think to a certain extent it's more like I'm just a like a little node in the in the web and like someday somebody be researching Peter Broltzman and they're like, whoa, Fred Lumberholm, he had something to do with him. Let me see if there's anything from Peter there. And so for right now I think that they don't really have the time, manpower, energy, interest in sitting and doing the kind of tedious work that that archivists have to do. So they're just like, oh, great, we have this pile of stuff, and someday maybe somebody <laughs> will, you know, I don't know. And if they do nothing with it, it I'll be, you know, off the planet soon enough anyway, so I, I don't really care anyway. So I'm just glad not to have to schlep it around or throw it away. So part of what we're hoping to do with this this venture that we're working on currently, Bright Archives, is to explore that question of what makes a meaningful archive. What's the difference between my work as an archivist, you know, working at a professional institution, cataloging materials, making them available for researchers, and the joyful work that you're doing, collecting <laughs> pins, collecting books, you know, finding moments in each day to enjoy those objects. Just draw a line between the two and explore some of those themes um, because they have a lot in common, but they're also very different. Um, and I think sometimes values don't quite line up or there's a lot of mystique around what 
an institutional archive. You know, what are they doing with my stuff? Is it in an Indiana Jones style warehouse with a label on it that no one ever sees? You know, what exactly is that process? Real art, archival work is a is a science, right? I mean, there's a there's a regimen and there's a there's a technique protocols. There's I grew up in a household. My father was a scientist. My oldest brother is an oncologist. My other brother is a drug uh, developer, and so they're all they all are very much tuned. They're not archivists, but they're very in tune to to the scientific method, let's say. And I was always maybe, I'm, I'm not the black sheep of the family, but I was definitely the odd outlier who like just didn't have anything to do with that and did his own thing, you know? And uh, I wasn't rebelling. I was just being me and allowed to be me. And uh, so I go about it my way. And yeah, my life is a little bit more about just the, the pleasure, joy of admiring a pin. I think a lot of people are on, on the internet a lot because they work at a computer and there are a lot of times where you have to wait for something to compile or you're uploading or you're downloading. There's a lot of lag time. And then a lot of people say, well, I'll check in on Facebook. So a lot of times instead I, I have like a, a bowl of pins that I recently acquired and I pull out a pin and I look at the pin and maybe I read up about, I try to figure it out. You know, now with image searches, sometimes like, and it's very easy, it used to be harder. Or with the Russian things, you know, I had to, like, for a long time, sort of try to piece out, like, what does it say? Or ask my Russian friends. And you're right. I mean, in the little books, it's the same kind of thing. I just have time or I'm listening to music or I'm waiting for something to happen. I pull out a box and I, and I look at uh, little books. I've also started making little books myself uh, during the pandemic. I made a bunch of them and leave them around in the little mini libraries, the free libraries. And, at first, they were like called Tiny Facebook, and they were just drawings of people wearing masks. I even made one for uh, for the local ReStore, you know, the Habitat for Humanity. And I made one for them, sort of uh, talking about how you should support the ReStore and why the ReStore is important or something. And, and they uh, duplicate them and, uh, and uh, have them by the cash register. And the Tiny Zine collection at the University of... Uh, the SUNY New Pulse, uh, the director of that saw the little book at the ReStore, and so they're going to have some of the some of my tiny books in their in their collection, which is cool. It's the Sojourner Truth Library. Mm. I'm I'm associated with the Sojourner Truth Library <laughs> at the State University. It's my most distinguished uh, credential, probably at this point. Fred, I was wondering if there's any pins that are especially surprising or weird or uh, personal favorites? Oh, a bunch. These are fraternal societies. This is the Fraternal Order of Orioles. And it's from early 20th century, around 1900. Oh, here's one of my Independent Order of Red Men pins. I like service recognition for a weird, in a weird way. 25 years service award. Somebody put 25 years in to a company. Hopefully they got paid a living wage. And, and then they were rewarded with a little pin that said 25 years. Walmart likes to make nicely designed pins for their employees. Here, here's excellence in service for four years. 
I love I love the vagueness of these pins. Yeah, these this the service awards generally are really here's a service award for twenty years. Farm Bureau, 10, 20 years of service for the New York State Farm Bureau. Do these take on a function? Do you wear them on your lapel ever? Mm, generally no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, actually I don't want to identify as any of these things or people and you know what I'm saying? It's, like a lot of the most interesting sort of secret society or society fellowship organizations, A, I was never a member of them, and B, uh, I would oftentimes not really want to identify with the politics of the group either. So, you know, that's the thing. In Portugal, um, the uh, right-wing uh, parties made really beautiful pins. I, I, they're, almost all my Portuguese pins are in Portugal right now, so I can't show you them, but... But it's interesting, they, they, the communists, the socialists, the, you know, the fascists, they all made pins and they all seem to kind of make more, maybe it's because of the, you know, my blinders not being Portuguese, but they all look very interesting and kind of cool. I, I'm reluctant to walk around with a pin from a group that I don't belong to and don't know that much about. What's the what's the future of the collection? What do you see happening with it in the future? So when I see pins that I like that I feel I can afford, I'd buy them. I've bought probably in the last this year, oh, at least twenty or thirty pins. What would be really great, and I don't think it'll ever happen, is uh, if I could start learning more about like. Sima, my partner, she is really interested in costume jewelry. And she, maybe because a lot of that's more well-documented, she often knows who the designer was. But with every pin I own, I really couldn't tell you who designed it or where it was fabricated or how many of them were made or whether if they're really collectible or if just somebody's out of their mind because they're asking 40 bucks for one on uh, on eBay. You know, maybe eventually I could see focusing on a particular subject and trying to learn more about the history of not the object or what it represented, but how it itself was made. But, oh, a tiny book. I got a tiny book story for you. So I was at a concert in a loft at a famous artists uh, loft in New York in the 80s. And I was into little books, you know, and, but I didn't know how to impress. And, and by the elevator, there was a bowl of these little books. And I thought they were like party favors. <laughs> I picked out one and I was like, oh, this is cool. And, I, and so then I was talking to my teacher at the time, the week later, you know, how do you like the concert? It was a great concert. It was like a Morton Feldman. It was Triadic Memories, I think, if I'm right. Anyway, uh, Aki Takahashi playing. You know, it's really high class. What's his name? David. Uh, anyway, it was fancy people land, right? You know, so I, on the way when I was leaving, I took one of the books and I was like, oh, that's really great. And I told my teacher, I said, yeah, it was a great concert. Oh, you know, I got this really cool book. And she said, oh, you weren't, that was, those weren't free. <laughs> That's his, uh, he, he's involved in publishing those, and that's a, that was a complete set of them that he had on display or whatever. And she said, but don't say anything, don't tell anybody, you know, don't say just, just forget about it, don't, but, you know, you shouldn't do that. So, <laughs> anyway, 
So, uh, so you know, so I've been both buying and stealing tiny books for a long time. But um, but it's great, you know. I mean, really, like I said, I I was I lived in New York City, then I lived in California, then I lived in New York City, then I lived in Chicago, and every time in those places in Chicago alone, I lived in one, two, three, four, five different addresses, and then. Anyway, then Indiana, and then now upstate New York again. It's a lot of moving. <laughs> yeah, too much, too much. But but still manage to maintain these collections. Nomadic moving and collecting don't necessarily go hand in hand. Exactly. But you found a strategy. Keep it yeah. small. This is what all the all the old artists, musicians, you know, dancers that I knew when I was a kid. They keep your nuts small. So. <laughs> so. Keep your collection small. (laughs) (laughs) Context is such an important part of any collection, and it's interesting how it really depends on the individual. Fred prioritizes the design, but another person might put more weight on what the pin represented historically, or the memories attached to it. Yeah, the meaning I associate with an object isn't necessarily your meaning. As we continue the Collector's Edition series, I'm really looking forward to seeing how context plays a role in people's collections. Thanks for listening to the Bright Archives podcast. This episode was produced by Catherine and Dave. And I also did the sound design and made some of the music. And you also heard two pieces from Fred Lombringholm. The first one is a piece by the band Terminal 4 and is called This Can't Go On. The second piece is a solo cello piece called Dialogue 1 from the album Dialogue. And tune in next time to hear more stories about meaningful archives. If you'd like to hear more about these topics, we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a comment or drop us a line.